Hi, how are you doing? I'm sitting on a bridge over my local river. It's not a pretty bucolic bridge. It's a slab of reinforced concrete that joins two low-lying marshy areas of agricultural land. So it's strong enough for things like tractors and heavy machinery to pass over. But around me, the elderflowers are holding up their plates of blossom to the sky. The nettles are thick and lush, and there are birds singing all around. Today, I'm going to do a walk that follows the course of this river, or as closely as I can. A lot of it passes through private land, but I've worked out a route um, along footpaths and rights of way that kind of crisscross it a few times and that take me downstream. My name's Melissa Harrison, and I'm a novelist and nature writer who lives in rural Suffolk. Right through summer, and into autumn, I'm going to help you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. Welcome to episode nine of The Stubborn Light of Things. a wooden bridge over the river. It's got chicken wire attached to the wood to stop it being slippy. I always pause here when I come this way and just have a look for water voles or kingfishers. But there's nothing today. And the river here is controlled by a sluice about six miles downstream and that affects both the water level and the flow. It's not moving much today. I was hoping to get some nice water noises for you, but never mind. This week's guest is the naturalist, writer and campaigner, Dr Amy Jane Beer. Amy's currently working on a book about rivers for Bloomsbury. It's half past five in the morning and Amy's just walked through a pasture full of buttercups and cattle. She's launching her yellow kayak into the Derwent where the faintest wisps of mist still cling to the water. This is the River Derwent. It's the river I live on in North Yorkshire, one of four Derwents in the country. And the name comes from Dar for oak. So all the Derwents were rivers that ran through oak. The river's completely still ahead of me and behind me. The ripples are those caused by my boat. The sun is bouncing off the river and projecting onto the 
underside of the overhanging tree canopy. So I can see my ripples spreading through the trees as well as over the water. I used to do a lot of white water paddling. And one of the things I, I loved about that most was the ability to get to places it's hard to access any other way. Gorges and canyons protected by rapids. Secret hollows carved and smoothed by the water. And my familiars were dippers and kingfishers and herons and wagtails. And when I stopped paddling a few years ago, I still had the, the memories. I still had the photos, the stories. But without the full surround sound and surround scent experience of being on and in the river, the memories are they're sort of flat. They're like almost convincing until you go back. One day I did find myself going back and scrambling down into a gorge and standing by a rapid and breathing that air that is enlivened by the full sound and scent of the river. And it was like suddenly tuning in. A sudden realisation that something had been missing. We trust our memories, but they do wear thin. And we start to rely more on photographs and anecdote. But even the best photograph can't remind you how the air felt, how the water felt under you. And unless you exercise the senses that you use to fill in those memories, they flatten out further and they fade. Looking at a photograph, you don't remember what was behind you. I'm down by the river. <laughs> In the next village, just close to our wonderful village shop which has stepped up so brilliantly in the last few weeks and there are five geese which have just plopped into the water and are coming to have a look at me to see if I'm going to give them anything tasty to eat. It looks to me like two adults who are pure white and three juveniles, which are a bit dirty brown still. And they're having little arguments. <laughs> Getting a bit cross with each other. Oh yes. Oh dear. Behind that rather unmusical sound and the sound of the wind, which I'm sure you can hear too, is a song thrush.
the geese are paddling in the mud with their feet and then eating what they kick up in the water. They look very beady and very determined. And when they pass under the road bridge, it sets up a lovely echo. Right, geese. See you later. Behave yourselves. Try not to argue. I moved five miles last year, um, one of a succession of house moves, uh, hopefully the last for some time. And one of the things I miss about my old village is a particular veteran oak um, that I could reach very easily from my cottage. It's thought to be 700 years old. It was a really good climbing tree and I used to sit in it quite often, particularly at dusk, as you'll hear from my Times Nature notebook from this time last year. One of my favourite things to do on warm spring evenings is climb the huge veteran oak not far from my cottage and watch the sun go down over the fields. I've even been known to take a bottle of wine. I've watched all sorts of creatures from my vantage point. Hares boxing only a few yards away. Little owls dropping from a neighbouring tree to eat beetles among the young maize. Great spotted woodpeckers drilling the branches above me, roe deer stepping cautiously out of the copses, and of course the usual farmland denizens, rooks, pheasants and rabbits. There are baby rabbits everywhere right now, and sitting in my oak I watched an alert doe shepherd four kits out from the warren by the field path to feed. In Watership Down, Richard Adams called the dawn and dusk feeding periods silflay, they're timed to maximise the chances of dew being on the ground, as rabbits, a vulnerable prey species, avoid congregating to drink from puddles or streams. The evening sun picks them out as they play, gold-edged and painterly, humble but quite lovely in the low, warm light. While on our regular village litter pick, I had ample time to consider what's become a ubiquitous but barely regarded blight on the environment. I don't mean the rubbish, but over-tidiness. Road verges moan in full bloom when there's no visibility issue. Valuable dead wood cleared away. Hedges topped from habit twice yearly, making them useless as wildlife habitats or corridors. And urban pavements, paths and the bases of park trees sprayed with glyphosate to prevent any unsanctioned eruption of life. This mania for tidiness is eradicating wildflowers, butterflies, insect and seed-eating birds, hedgehogs and a whole host of other creatures we profess to love. So why are we letting it happen? I think it's crept up on us slowly, so that we simply can't see the harm we're doing. Just as we believe the number of insects around us is normal, rather than terrifyingly depleted, 
It looks right to us now for verges to be raised rather than riotous and for farmland hedges to look ugly and smashed. We've been slow to wake up to how crucial these vestiges of habitat have become for wildlife, as pressures on the wider countryside have invisibly mounted up. To turn things around requires a paradigm shift. Can we tolerate an untidier, bushier, scrubbier environment to help bring nature back? I'm just crossing the river again on a little wooden bridge and thinking how I remember earlier in the year the water being over this bridge and the two little water meadows on either side both being flooded. I came down with my wellies and when I got to the river I couldn't cross and now it's what? I mean the bridge has got to be at least my height above the water, I'm five foot two, maybe more. It's really hard to imagine it being that high. And I'm just having a look at the banks, particularly under the footbridge, because there's often sort of bare muddy bits because you don't get the vegetation so much under the bridge because it's because the shade and in those bare muddy bits you can often see animal prints um, and otter slides when otters go in they sometimes go in on their tummies I can see dog prints I found prints in this spot that I wasn't sure whether they were rat or water vole you'd have to be a lot more expert than than I am No, I can't see any interesting prints this time. It's always worth having a look, though. One of the lovely things about this time of year in Suffolk is the poppies are starting to come out in the hedgerows and on the field margins. Field poppies um, were long considered a blight of arable fields and John Clare who loved wildflowers um, wrote about them troubling the cornfields with their destroying beauty and when modern herbicides were developed poppies were no match for them and they were almost completely wiped out but their seeds can lay dormant for I think 40 years and now that we're returning too slowly but returning to some slightly more wildlife-friendly practices in agriculture, they're staging a little bit of a comeback. And this is the time of year when they first start to come out. Now, that is a lesser white throat, and I know that only because... Each year I try to learn the song of a new bird, and that is my bird for this year. A yellow hammer sings a little bit of bread and no cheese, and the lesser white throat just sings a little bit of bread and no.
I found a really peaceful bend in the river where there is a large fallen tree that crosses to the other bank and I'm sitting on the fallen tree above the water hoping it's sturdy enough and isn't going to tip me in There's a meadow on one side of me with very, very tall grass, lots of feathery seed heads. And there are lots and lots of very small gnats, which I'm hoping aren't feasting on me. I'm one of those people that insects feast on. And I've got some mini cheddars. Do you like to take a snack on my explorations? It's about that time in the podcast when we hear from everybody's favourite parson naturalist, Gilbert White. Here he is with his diary entries for today, June the 1st. June the 1st. 1780. Distant clouds, sultry thunderclouds, sulphurous smell in the air, sweet even small shower, strawberries blow well, medlar shows much bloom, honeysuckles blow, fern owl chatters, churworm jars. The tortoise shuns the intense heat by covering himself with dead grass and does not eat till the afternoon. Terrible storms in the Oxfordshire and Wilts. June the 1st, 1783. A late frost cut down the fern, scorched many trees. June the 1st, 1786. Dragonflies have been out some days. The oaks in many places are infested with caterpillars to such a degree as to be quite naked of leaves. These palmer worms hang down from the trees by long threads. The apple trees at Farringdon are annoyed by another set of caterpillars that strip them of all of their foliage. My hedges are also damaged by the caterpillars. June the 1st, 1789. Monk's rhubarb seven feet high makes a noble appearance in bloom. June the 1st, 1791. Men wash their fatting sheep. Trouts come up the shallow streams almost to the spring heads to lay their spawn. June the 1st, 1793. Timothy is very voracious. When he can get no other food, he eats grass in the walks. I read something once, it was probably bullshit, but I thought it was interesting. It said that some people had a memory of their lives that was continuous, that told a continuous story, and that other people had a memory that was more serialised, more broken up incidents. And if that's true, I'm definitely in the the latter camp. I don't have a great sense of continuity through my life, of one person 
that's existed all this time. It seems quite fragmented to me, lots of different me's in different places. It doesn't all quite join up. <laughs> A duck just arrived. I think about my dad, who died earlier this year. He lived well with dementia for 25 years, more than half my life. And as his condition progressed, we learned a lot about memory and how complex it is and how much of a person it makes up. The last things to go were his childhood memories, and that's where he was really for the last part of his life and where we joined him, and that was important. It was important to be with him where he was and not try and pull him into what we thought of as our own reality. But he had all sorts of different kinds of memory, we realised. There was a point when he didn't know that the house he was in was his anymore. And he would ask us whose house it was and he would say that he didn't recognise it and he didn't know where he was. Except he did, because he knew where the loo was and he knew where the kitchen was and he could find his way about perfectly well. So there was the sort of top layer conscious memory that might not have been giving him the information that he wanted but there was a whole other layer that was that was fine and that and that meant that the house did feel familiar to him in every single way and then there was another layer which was a sort of emotional layer of memory I used to struggle with this at the beginning when his dementia began to worsen I think We've just had a really nice day, but he won't remember any of it. What's the point? And I used to comfort myself with it as well. If something bad happened, I'd say, well, he won't, he won't remember it anyway. That's all right. But he did remember. A good day left him feeling happy and relaxed. He knew he had had a good day. You know, he... He knew it at a level that wasn't to do with there being memories of the day, but, but affected him nonetheless. And bad experiences or stress or problems left their marks too. And what was revealed towards the end was what kind of a man he was. because there were so many things that persisted. His good manners. And his wish to be a host, to look after people that came to visit him. Those things had become part of his character and that's another kind of memory. The way we are in the world, the way we behave with other people, 
that's a kind of memory. And even when he didn't know who we were, we couldn't have told you my name, he knew I was someone that loved him and who he loved, and that was enough. Wouldn't it be amazing if an otter just swam up the river under this fallen tree? I've never seen an otter in the wild. I know they're about. I mean, no otter's going to come within, you know, a kilometre of me sitting here eating mini cheddars. But if one did appear, I would give it a mini cheddar. Just the one, though. I've gone about as far as I can on today's walk. From here, the river passes through quite a large stretch of agricultural land and I can't follow it, so um, this is about as far as I go. But before I turn back and retrace my steps, I really want to get my feet wet. So I'm going to try and have a little paddle. I've taken my socks and trainers off and I'm creeping towards the water. There have been cattle around here so it's quite churned up, quite muddy. And the mud is oozing up between my toes. <laughs> I'm in the water. Wow, it's cold and the mud seems to be endless under my feet. Actually I could just sink into this um, until I disappear. Wow. <laughs> it gives you that heart-lifting feeling when you've done something a bit unusual. And there are um, yellow flags around me, not quite in bloom. They're almost choking the passage of the water. And around me too are um, red damselflies. And I think they emerged early this year. Um, I'm not sure. That's something I need to check on the Nature's Calendar website, which you can find on the Woodland Trust website. Um, and that's a record of phenology, which is the study of when things happen, when, when seasonal events happen each year. And sometimes you feel like things are early or late, but you check them on Nature's Calendar and you can find out whether you're right or not. The poem this week is by Robert Selby. And I first came across it in The New Statesman. And when I read it, it pretty much felled me at the knees. His collection, The Coming Downtime, came out recently. And it's got a beautiful Claire Leighton engraving on the cover. And I was thrilled to discover um, when I read it that Robert and I have got a great deal um, in common. Uh, we share interests in all sorts of things, including the fact that the collection is almost entirely set here in Suffolk. Your bright jays. Darling, all the years left to me wouldn't allow enough time to describe how much I miss you. I wanted to tell you, I know you're gone now. I address this not to your imposter who, in heart-stopping moments, registers recognition in her eyes. When I arrive 
in the cardi you knitted during a knitting phase. Or she slaps my wrist when I slurp my tea, a habit you despised. But then the sun goes in and her eyes glaze. I love you, so I visit her every day. When she won, I had to give you up. I couldn't manage the fear. She calls after me, frightened when I come away. Sometimes it's not my name, or it is, but with a sneer. Today, after she was settled, I came home to the kitchen table and cried. It was so quiet, I could hear your bright jays playing on the roof. I knew then that you had died. The body is negotiable fact, the spirit truth. <laughs>